The bedrock of their success has been establishing the credibility within the tactical execution, both defensively and offensively. Uh, certainly as the regime starts to realize the uh, projection of power capability, force projection that these uh, hacker cadres have at the educational level. Again, remember the internet is essentially based at Islamic Assad University. They will start to realize that this is one of those uh, non-proxy types of force projection capabilities. They'll be slower to adapt it as a leadership, but once they do, stand by, folks. Seriously. Welcome to the Reimagining Cyber Podcast, where we share short and to-the-point perspectives on the cyber landscape. It's all about engaging yet casual conversations on what organizations are doing to reimagine their cyber programs while ensuring their business objectives are top priority. With my co-host, Stan Wisseman, Head of Security Strategist, I'm Rob Borrego, Chief Security Strategist, and this is Reimagining Cyber. Hey, Stan, so who do we have joining us today? Rob, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, we have to adapt to today's cyber threats. To do that, we need to better understand the major actors behind them. We're fortunate to have with us one of the foremost authorities on nation state threat actors in cyber, Bill Hagestad. Bill is a retired Lieutenant Colonel from the US Marine Corps and is an internationally recognized authority that has written several books on this topic. Bill, thank you for joining us to help us better understand Iran and their strategy as a threat actor. This is especially important since Iran was in the news again recently as being potentially subject to a cyber attack themselves and their nuclear facilities. And they may react in kind um, due to that attack. Bill, again, thank you for being with us. You're very welcome, gentlemen. My pleasure. Bill, can you tell us about your experience growing up in Iran? Um, ah, why, yes. why does that make you a sought after <laughs> cyber warfare operator? Well, this would have been uh, right at the height of the, the Vietnam War. Uh, my father was a uh, was selected as a Fulbright uh, professor, and I remember growing up in rural Wisconsin. He said, "You know, do you want to have the material things of growing up in Middle America, or do you want to enjoy what it's like to travel the world and grow up in a in a culture other than ours?" And both my brother, myself, and my my mom, we all basically agreed, "Let's go to Iran," and we spent uh, almost uh, six years there, essentially growing up. But it, it's as vivid now as it was then. Uh, the culture and the people, of course, under the Shah of Iran uh, was much different than it is under the religious clerics of today's Islamic Republic of Iran. But the people were very gracious, uh, very respectful. Um, in fact, I've met many of them in uh, foreign uh, countries that I visited or talked in, uh, spoken in, uh, and they, it reaffirms that memory very positively of what I have of Persia. Bill, one of the things I wanted to uh, kind of jump in with here is since early last year, um, in regards to the drone strikes on Iranian General Qasem Soleimani, it's been a concern, right, nationally. And um, security experts have really been worried about what retaliatory cyber attacks could be coming our way. Organizations, you know, they're preparing for the worst. You kind of see it from multiple different directions. You know, what's the potential there as it relates to a major cyber incident? What's the kind of perspective on the government side, the private sector? They're all trying to map this together. You know, why don't we just ask you, but what, what are you seeing out there in a lot of different research that you've been doing and a lot of visibility that you have? What is your take on it? Well, one must look at it uh, specifically from the Persian hackers perspective, the Iranian hacker of today. Uh, they are still not recognized as uh, hackers of their own right on the international stage. Uh, they view themselves in a bit of self-deprecatory uh, 
evasiveness that nobody will recognize them. And that goes historically and culturally to who Iran and Persia was in, in the early centuries. Uh, they view themselves as, as the true center of the Middle East. And with that cultural uh, distinction, the hackers of Persia of today want to define themselves by one of these grandiose acts. Uh, you've referred to a couple of those from the kinetic side, perhaps, but I think the threat distinctly to our infrastructure is precisely that. They will continue to probe and look at ways to dismantle, degrade, disrupt, and destroy all areas of our 16 uh, critical areas of infrastructure here in the United States. We are no friend of theirs. Uh, certainly since the Shah, this is clearly evidence of that. I will tell you a quick story. Uh, I went to speak at uh, RSA Europe in the Netherlands. Uh, two groups of gentlemen sat down in front of me as I was getting my presentation ready. One were the Russians, and of course the Russians are the Russians, but there were also the Persians and they came and they basically said, Bill, we know precisely who you are, so you need to be very careful of what you're saying about our culture, about us as hackers, and about what our country will do. And I'll never forget that. I mean, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting because they, they are still determined to state that they are the most prolific hackers, even though their own contemporaries around the world, Asia, uh, the, middle, the fellow Middle East, Europeans, even in America, will regard them not as seriously as they perhaps should be taken. And our country is starting to feel the brunt of that. And, and I think one of the things you highlight there was the, the, the behavior that the Iranian Persian hackers have is um, perhaps more destructive in nature. I mean, I remember being at Fannie Mae in 2012, 2013, and even though we ultimately were not subject to one of their multi-phase DDoS attacks that they were sponsoring, they're upset about that video, Muhammad video that was posted, I believe on YouTube, and they were hitting the U.S. financial sector. And, and so that was a you know, oddity to us as to why are they doing this because of this video, but that was occurring and we had to take protective actions against that. And then Saudi Aramco hit and they you know, are attributed to a bricking thousands of their servers. Um, is that the behavior you think that's gonna continue as far as that kind of destructive, noisy kind of attack? Yes, absolutely. You know, you bring up a couple of points historically that are worth noting. Uh, if you think back to the Shah and all of the funds that had been taken to the financial capital of the world, London, and think of the SWIFT system, one of the greatest frustrations of the Iranian clerics and the current leadership within that country is they cannot access those funds. And think of the systems here in the United States, if they can cripple and destroy the capacity for us to administer to ourselves our own financial viability, then they will have succeeded in a destructive way as if to say, if we can't have access to our money, we're gonna destroy your country's ability to serve your uh, civilian population. Granted, they were not successful, but certainly we must take advantage of that. The other one uh, historically, of course, with Saudi Aramco, think of uh, your viewers are probably aware of it, uh, colloquially called Stuxnet. But the military operation behind that was called Olympic Games, Operation Olympic Games. Now, this was a triumvirate of indirect attack on the Natanz nuclear enrichment facility for uranium specifically. It was comprised of British, American, and Israeli efforts. And imagine, if you will, that it was simply a USB delivered uh, surreptitiously to someone, perhaps on the inside. Of course, we will never know the real story in order to disrupt that capability. This spurred in the Iranian psyche, I believe, and uh, just a 
a distinct desire to have retribution for somebody that would dare come on their soil and disrupt their capacity to conduct what they believe is something that they are duty bound and uh, culturally uh, capable of doing. So, so Bill, you know, since we're seemingly drawing down our military presence in the Middle East, do you have any insights on kind of Iran's aggressive posture within the cyber realm? And specifically, if you think about it, right, the, the conversation for some time has been that the next major war will be via cyber. And when you consider that and you think about where Iran st- stands today kind of globally, right, they're, they're not at that level, as you've mentioned, that tier one, if you will, right, but they're, they're, they're trying to make those advancements and movements. I mean, what are you thinking there from a timing perspective of getting their capabilities to that type of level? Yes, let's, let's back it up and talk about capacity building within the Iranian uh, cyber capability militarily. Uh, as many of your viewers are probably aware, uh, they manufacture their own internet. It is the halal internet. It is essentially cut off from the rest of the world. They can turn it on and turn it off. And with that capability means they can use that much like a precision guided munition and aim all of that initiative and effort destructively at whomever they want to do. Where I see this perhaps going is if they find the right soft target whether that be some, another country that is not favorable to them in the Middle East, or perhaps it is a tertiary country that supports the United States directly or indirectly militarily, then they will focus all that energy as if to say, not only are we going to go after your military supply chain, but also the cultural, political instability that we desire to create conditions which will allow us perhaps to have allies in our cyber arsenal that will continue to take advantage of and press that attack home. I don't see that too far off in the future, unfortunately. So, Bill, um, you know, typically when we're looking at preventing attacks, a lot of times that falls in categories of data exfiltration, um, and we're worried about uh, theft of PII, um, IP. But in this context of this threat actor, it's it's it, again um, they're making a point. They're trying to. Um, act out in, 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 in retribution, as you're pointing out, or um, in the context of just uh, trying to disrupt our ability to do business. Uh, and that's a different level of, of, of response. And so as a, an enterprise or an organization, how do you best understand what to do if, if you perceive them as a threat actor targeting you Uh, Indeed, this is not an easy answer. Unfortunately, uh, most uh, commercial executives, uh, with all due respect, perhaps have not served in the military. That in and of itself is not a detractor, but this is, make no mistakes, gentlemen, as the Iranians call it, a soft war, which means that they will come at whomever they want, whenever they want, however they decide. So it becomes more, not necessarily a game of how do I protect myself, but really avoiding the escalation for the sake of keeping yourself viable and commercially available to your customers. Uh, That is not an easy sentence, but the really the glib short answer is fundamentals of information security from a governance risk and compliance perspective, ensuring that you are conducting risk assessments against the most malevolent types of threat actors and their capabilities. Looking specifically at the techniques, tactics, and procedures of those past uh, historical case studies, such as Saudi Aramco, the financial debacles, uh, as you mentioned, and taking a look at what has happened in the past. The Iranian hackers will use what they have seen successfully, but I will also tell you that they are developing capabilities, specifically Mm. adapting surveillance types of technology in order to make it uh, much more available for themselves from an offensive perspective. 
when it comes to taking an idea or looking at reconnoitering institutions or enterprises that have a soft underbelly that they can take advantage of maliciously and violently. There will be some bi-directional sharing of techniques for sure. Uh, in many of the uh, international hacking events that I have gone to, capture the flags and other uh, various exercises. One, for example, that you may make note of is Hackers in Taiwan, HITCON, uh, takes place in Taipei every year. This is essentially a who's who of the most prolific, dangerous hackers on the planet. And the really funny thing is, they are young men and women, perhaps our children's age, and they are sharing some of the binaries and exploits that they have found to be quite powerful and prolific. And what they want to do is make it uh, essentially a name, a prideful name for themselves in the hacking community. This is exactly the type of attention that the Iranian hackers want. And if they can adapt that for their own use and perhaps uh, use it for the state, uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran, then gathering and gaining these types of technology and experiences abroad, certainly pre-COVID, uh, certainly to end here, certainly in the post-COVID world, they will do so and they will continue to do so with aggressive uh, behavior. You know, what's the future for them in the cyber warfare kind of side of things? I mean, do you see Iran starting to shift there? Are they still really being very tactical in that approach? Well, certainly the, the, the bedrock of their success has been establishing the credibility within the tactical execution, both defensively and offensively. Uh, certainly as the regime starts to realize the uh, projection of power capability, force projection that these uh, hacker cadres have at the educational level. Again, remember the internet is essentially based at Islamic Assad University. They will start to realize that this is one of those uh, non-proxy types of force projection capabilities. That may not take place because the clerics, as you know, are so deeply rooted in the religious historical bend of Persia as the center of the Middle East. They'll be slower to adapt it as a leadership, but once they do, stand by, folks. Seriously. Um, hey, Bill, you know, one of the things that we believe is um, very helpful for those on the defensive side is the MITRE attack framework. Are you seeing that being effective as far as being able to understand uh, and then apply controls to help prevent and detect and prevent attacks? Absolutely. The, the MITRE attack framework, while it has its uh, distinct uh, applicability from a defensive perspective, I think I would suggest that your listeners take a look at it from an offensive perspective, not hack back, don't, don't get me wrong, but from a cyber threat intelligence capability and capacity building framework take a look at some of those indicators of compromise, albeit they are not the end all to be all for everyone, but take a look at how some of these compromises have happened historically. Apply the current probing of your network to that uh, MITRE attack framework and essentially classify those threat actors using perhaps the diamond model, for example, into groups that you yourselves identify. While commercial companies will identify those for you, that's a good basis but everyone's mileage will vary based on who's probing them and attacking them. All APTs, advanced persistent group uh, will, threat groups will not act the same, uh, certainly not toward individual enterprises. That's why it's very important to develop a, uh, a proactive forecasting ability, uh, get inside the mind of the enemy and the MITRE attack framework is a fantastic way to do that. It's another uh, tool in the tool belt to facilitate uh, defensive actions because once a, a good threat operations center can predict or essentially help threat hunt some of these threat actors, they can give those targets of opportunity to the security operation uh, staff who can then focus their efforts defensively on protecting the enterprise at those uh, pinch points. So Bill, how are you seeing the approach that Iran is taking for more of the kinetic side of things being applied to the cyber warfare approaches that they're, they're modeling out? 
Yes, recent events certainly in Iraq give us an idea of what they are capable of, whether it's direct uh, Islamic Republican Guard Corps or their proxies. Uh, it gives you an idea that they are willing to launch uh, indirect attacks in order to affect negatively U.S. personnel that are stationed in Iraq. I think also there is the indirect material support to terrorist groups such as Hamas uh, facing Israel. So there is a, a lot of entrails, both from a kinetic physical as well as a cyber side. Uh, they're, you know, they're deigned, they're focused, they feel it is their responsibility to make sure that anybody that impudes, intrudes, or otherwise does not excuse themselves in the Middle East, according to the Iranian rules of engagement, they will feel their wrath from Tehran. Bill, another dynamic in the Middle East is obviously the tension between Saudi Arabia and Iran. How is that playing out in cyber? Well, certainly the most obvious would be the Saudi Aramco uh, attacks, uh, certainly causing a company uh, such as Aramco to have to essentially replace all of the infrastructure. A good friend of mine, Chris Quebeca, was involved in that forensically and from an, a remediation perspective. I think that gives you an idea of the resolve of the Iranians, but it also is a bit of a signal in terms of the lack of preparation of the kingdom. Certainly that has matured itself to the point that we're at now. I will tell you, uh, having been stationed in the, in the uh, Middle East, not as a active military, uh, but as a, uh, an individual of uh, interest to, to those particular countries, I watched and helped create an offensive cyber capability for another kingdom. And the focus of that attention defensively and offensively was the Islamic Republic of Iran. So it's not just Saudi Arabia, everyone in that region is very concerned about that destructive capability. Well, Bill, thank you for joining us. Truly insightful. And the concept of thinking like an enemy is critically important. You've definitely proven that. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it, gentlemen. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for listening to the Reimagining Cyber Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to have us cover a specific topic of interest, feel free to reach out to us and you can find out how in the show notes. And don't forget to subscribe. This podcast was brought to you by CyberRes, a micro-focused line of business. Our mission is to deliver cyber resilience by engaging people, process, and technology to protect, detect, and evolve.